Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number eight of the Fuse Room Recording Studio podcast. My name is Alberto, and as usual, and in this episode, we're going to talk about something we did, which is really, really awesome, and we released a couple weeks ago. It's the remastering of a famous soundtrack of video game Dreamweb. This video game is a legend among lots of people who are fans of science fiction, cyberpunk, dystopian video games in general. And, as I said, it's got an amazing soundtrack. Probably the reason why the game is also so immersive and the experience of this adventure game in the 90s was so cool is mostly due to its soundtrack, which blends perfectly with the genre. And lots of people think and still believe that... This soundtrack is still one of the most appropriate to the style and the genre of this video game and in general to cyberpunk atmospheres ever. So pretty cool. The composer Matt Selden um, was kind enough to give us the okay, the get-go for this remastering that he had sort of asked for on forums, I think since 2014, but nobody had picked up on that. And I contacted Matt and I offered the services of the studio to do that. And he was really, really happy to say, you can do it, go. So I trust you, you have my authorization, go there. So the moment we got this information, I was super, super excited and moved on to what was a two, probably two weeks and a half process to remaster this whole soundtrack. Now, I want to talk about that. A lot of people that saw the Bandcamp page, which is dreamweb-remastered.bandcamp.com, asked me if I could share you know, some information about how the remastering process went. So I thought I would dedicate this whole episode to this remaster of the soundtrack. Now, the game itself had a CD-ROM. So it had a CD that came, I think, with a second edition or something after the initial floppy disk. And after this, you know, along with this CD-ROM, there was an audio CD a soundtrack, I would say. And this was a bonus disc that, if I'm correct, if I remember correctly, not every version of the game had. There might be versions on eBay that have this bonus CD, and they are obviously more rare than, than the actual CD-ROM game, and even more rare probably than the floppy disk version. But this CD has 10 songs, and these tracks are part of what you hear in game, but they're not exactly the same. So what I wanted to do was extract the music from the video game and make it what I call the side A in honor of tapes. And um, it's actually a first, first disc, disc one. And the second disc is the remaster of the soundtrack bonus CD that you would have with the game. So... Extracting the audio wasn't exactly a piece of cake. The thing is, the audio is in the files of this game. We're talking about, I think, two or three megabyte files. There's around 60 or 70 of them. And they contain audio from the whole video game. So it has sound effects, it has music, it has most speech as well from the game. It was, I remember, one of the first video games where most of the stuff you would read was actually spoken word. So it was dubbed and there was an actor doing, you know, just reading and interpreting what you were reading. So it was adding to the immersion a lot to be able to hear voices and the narration of Ryan, which is the main character of, of this video game, you are actually playing as Ryan. 
And I won't spoil anything if you haven't played, because in my opinion, it's a game that's worth playing. It doesn't matter. It never gets old, even if its graphics might have been now surpassed by lots of you know better technology. I actually believe that the pixel uh, graphics style kind of got more interesting with the years. So it's like this pixel style got back in you know in fashion. I think from around 2000 or something like that. So it was like a 10, 15 years comeback that this style of graphics and video games made. So lots of indie games went back to that route of pixel graphics. And this video game now looks not too weird, just probably because of that. But it's a top-down adventure game with some twist compared to other video games like, I don't know, the classic LucasArts, uh, Monkey Island, you know, Zack McCracken, Manic Mansion, all that stuff, the dig that you're used to play. It's a little bit different. There's no menus for actions, but it's it's very, very immersive. It's got this unique approach to the storyline. And the storyline itself is also amazing. So if you want to play, be my guest, do it, do yourself a favor, play this game. It's going to be like, you know, something you probably remember. But getting back to the music itself, the music was, as I said, encrypted to these files. So I got a hold of the CD-ROMs. And this is how we decided to work with Matt, because Matt, quote, I'm almost quoting him exactly, he said, most of these are gone. I don't know if I'm gonna be able to pick these masters again to find some cassettes or stuff because I recorded this whole thing on a Porta Studio 8. Porta Studio is a little gem in home recording. So what happened was Tascam, I think, wasn't the first, but it was on the market with other competitors, maybe Teak, maybe Sony, I don't remember. But it was that time where the big tape machines would get scaled down and lots of consumer-oriented tape machines would get out. So a Porta Studio is a little mixer, four to eight tracks. The eight-track version, I think, was called 488. So the 488 is the one that Matt used. And lo and behold, it would use a normal tape cassette. As simple as that. The idea was that these things were so widespread and everybody had one laying around that you would be able to just record four or eight tracks of your music into a tape device, a tape medium that you already had. So rather than using ADAT or VHS or something like fancier, they just went to, you know, down to the ground with what consumers had. And I think it had a little bit of fortune back then. I don't know how much they sold, but this is what Matt used to compose to and record the actual soundtrack. So he said, the tapes are gone. You, you know, music cassettes are not the best at holding quality. There's not a lot of magnetic uh, ferrite and tape and stuff on it. So they're not like master tapes from your average Studer or Ampex, right? So they don't withstand the trial of time that well. He said it's probably best to use the CD-ROM version and find the audio file in there. So at Abandonia, I found a user called Banjo, kudos to the guy, who was able to decode the audio and find out that this stuff was actually um, 11K.025. So it's like half the cassette or actually... I think, no, it was like cassette format. So it was 2250. And the reason I got mistaken is that you would get 
the wrong sample rate if you didn't pick the right um, the right bit format. So he was able to determine that if you went for 8-bit unsigned, you were able, that's correct, to get to the 22.05k standard. And you would be able to open something like, he did it in Gold Wave, I did it in Audition, but it's kind of the same, like to import that thing in an audio editor and at that point, get the track. So the moment I opened everything, I saw that it was everything was just in line. Like you had those 60 files and all of them had different sound effects and music just laid one after the other. So I extracted them, I cut them, I cut all the sound effects, all the speech files, and most importantly, the music. So using his track naming, which I found very interesting and appropriate, I basically rewrote everything that he had done in terms of tracks and also the track order. So I picked from this version that was already around and wasn't bad, it was actually good, where everything was just put on tracks so that you could listen to that, which is something you couldn't do in the video game, as I said. You had this bonus disc, which was 44.1 standard Red Bull audio CD, but the in-game music was different and still on the same style, but different and in encrypted in these audio files. So once I had everything out there, I noticed the first thing that not only was the quality in audio cassette quality, so not what we're used to now, 44.1, but also that they were very noisy because I assume of the tape noise and also the digital noise or aliasing for the acquisition in there. So I don't know if the game itself, the audio engine in the game, had some sort of, um, I would say, filtering. It kind of sounded like we were going full blast into the very last frequencies, which, you know, for Nyquist, if, you, if you're keeping count and you're a geek in audio production, you know that if we go 22.05, then we have a maximum of 11.025. So that's the top, that the highest frequency we can sample. It's half of the sampling frequency we have. So at that point, it sounds like there's an aliasing problem at the very end of the spectrum. So I am assuming I couldn't really hear it in-game, so I'm assuming there's got to be some filtering in-game. But once you get all the raw stuff, it's got the tape noise and it's got the digital noise from the acquisition or you know digitalization of the thing so this was a couple problems that i immediately recognized and also the tracks were mono so i took the administrative decision to say this can't be entirely mono so we have to do a denoising but we have also to take into account that stereo is kind of nice so what I did first was denoise. I tried some software and I ended up with a mixture of um, Sonic Studio D, uh, No Noise and Isotope RX. And with these two milder but combined kind of noise reduction algorithms, I was able to take into account that the noise would be removed without you know affecting too much of the music because that's the main problem when you do noise reduction you get the noise to to go but also you just subtract so much from the high frequency detail and music becomes so dull and it starts starts to sound like something like if you remember very old low quality mp3s from end of the 90s and we don't want that we don't want it to sound garbled so i found the right amount of tape hiss 
which I think it's not it's not too much of a problem, and it's also you know reminiscence to what Matt of how he had initially acquired you know tracked the whole session. So I got it to a point where I liked it. Then I took care of the digital kind of noise that was kind of easier to sample and predict in a way, and it was also very high in the spectrum too. So that makes it easier to you know the extremes are easier to to mangle and clean than the middle frequencies. So at that point, I decided to go spatial. And what I did is I really didn't want to use any stereoizer kind of effect. I think that they don't sound nice and I think that they make everything sound worse, makes phase relationship kind of weird. So I had these administrative decisions to say, do I want to go in stereo? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I want stereo, but how to do that. So I ended up splitting the signal in three bands. And for those of you who know, this is possible sometimes in automation with some of the plugins, the Isotope RX has one plug. But what I did is I sent it to three different multiband compressors whose crossovers were solos or muted. So basically I put, I, I think I created three versions of each uh, track. And so the same track is basically now three times playing, but on each of these three tracks, there is a multiband compressor, which I used the Sonoris multiband compressor, which I love. It's one of the bundles, the Sonoris bundle plugins that I still use to this day in digital. And so I'm very confident with that. It's a multiband compressor I know. And what I did was I used its crossovers to split, I think from the lowest sub stuff to around 110, 120, and then from there to probably 10K or 8K or something like that, and then the extreme highs. So these three tracks propose three different frequency ranges, and all together they sound like the mono kind of original track. Not identically because of the crossover frequencies, but kind of there. At that point, I used a delays, especially on the mids and highs, but with different settings to simulate with the house effect, a little bit of the stereo imaging. So I used a little bit of exciters, a little bit of just high frequency EQing, but all done by hand with uh, preserving the top, the lowest band with up until 100 hertz is much as mono as I could. Not entirely mono, but I would say pretty much centered. Reason being, there's lots of lows there and they usually hand up in the center. So I still wanted to have something that sounded nice, you know, in mono, which was the case initially, obviously, with that being mono. So... Once I got that, it took me a while to get something that could be used as a template. I wanted something that worked for all of the uh, around, I think, 16 tracks of the first CD. At that point, I saved everything, obviously, and I called it, I think, version 3 at that point, because I had two rounds of denoising and then this special, you know, stereo version of it. And from there on, I just went to regular mastering. So I put up an analog chain, regular mastering stuff, and I picked one compressor, I think a Varimu compressor and an equalizer, 
and I just went through. I think if you're keeping count, I used the Rock Rupal Comp 1 and my Fusiku to do this uh, sort of final beautification of the soundtrack. And I really loved how this turned out because it preserved the original vibe, but it kind of gave it a more analog you know, return to the whole thing, which started in analog and was digitized and then came back to analog this way. I printed everything, not on tape, but straight into the converter, and I went back into uh, Soundblade, and that's it. Printed at 44.1 stereo, 24 bits, then also 16 bits, and then from there I just uploaded that stuff on Bandcamp. That was it for the first CD, which then also got some bonus tracks because there were some Amiga, Commodore Amiga versions um, of this soundtrack, which I actually never had a chance to listen to in the video game. Uh, they were probably somewhere or they never got out. This, I really don't know, but they are five mod tracker music from the Commodore Amiga version. And if you know that version, uh, if you know mod tracker music, you already know what I'm talking about. It was very popular around the 90s and there's still lots of people that love that kind of genre. So I took these five um, mod songs, mod tracks, and I put them into, uh, I don't remember its name, I I think it's called Milky Way or something, um, mod tracker. Application, so it's basically a recreation for PC of or Macintosh. There was Mac and PC version, open source, and it's able to run the old mod tracker files, and it's able also to decide, which was my the most important detail of all of it, was to decide the sampling upscaling factor of the player. And you could choose the original Amiga, you could use Amiga AGA, you could use, you know, different algorithms. And this led me to step it up, I think, to the Langzos uh, upscaling, which gave the whole track a more, you know, a beefier, more boltier kind of sound. The, the thing with this, you could think about it as general MIDI stuff. So if, if it's very cheap general MIDI stuff, it usually doesn't sound that, that good from the get-go. So this way I was able to import the samples that uh, Matt had used, and these were four tracks. Uh, you could only at the time use these four tracks, and there's a nice like text editor that goes from the bottom up, and you can read the notes that each track you know plays. It's kind of basic, but it's still got its fan base because it's a very unique way of printing out and doing tracker music. Very much used in disco music, in electronic kind of groovy 4-4, four, 4-to-the-floor four, four kind of vibe. And I have to say, these tracks are also really good. And you can tell there's a footprint of this dystopian cyberpunk science fiction thing in between. Before um, these tracks arrive, it's track 18 to 22, I wrote a track 17, Dreamweb um, Soundscape. That's the name that I gave it. And it's just in-game sound effects used to create this soundscape. And I only used... Um, sound effects that I could extract from the game itself, just to make a sort of interlude between the 16 tracks and of the in-game music and these five Amiga tracker music things. The record was done, amazing, and I moved to side B, which is disc two. Disc two obviously was a completely different approach. This is an audio CD, 
and it already went through proper proper uh, Redbook standard 44.1 16-bit stereo kind of stuff. So I imported all of the audio files and listened to them, and the songs were really good. You know, I already, I could remember some of them, not all of them, but I heard them, you know, I had heard them on YouTube or, you know, different databases of stuff. People that had the original bonus disc in, in the box, in the game box. What I wanted to do was to create, it's very hard to say a better version. Every time you do a remaster, I'm not the kind of guy that wants to mess things up. We have to think about the fact that lots of people know those songs and they're perfectly fine. Uh, it doesn't matter if we go too technical on them because people love these tracks, how they sound. So what I don't like about some remastered versions is that they sound overhyped and I always end up listening to the original ones. So I wanted to approach them with this in mind. Like I don't want people to go back to the original just because it's better or it's, again, more original. So I wanted to respect the original vision, but make things a little bit better. So the only thing I did was, before, again, sort of beautifying these tracks, I decided to keep in check the left-to-right, mid-to-side relationship. What I found out, probably for from an administrative decision, this I don't know from the composers, I found out that most of the time there was a lot of bass and mid-bass frequencies that were out of place and a little bit too much in the stereo field. Sometimes it's an artistic decision, other times it's not. So I thought, okay, we already have the version where these frequencies float around the stereo field, but I want to try and make something that is enjoyable from a soundstage standpoint, but still has a stronger centered kind of thing. Because to hear the bass always on the left side and with a sort of flipped phase remnant left over on the right side, is doesn't make you seasick sometimes, but if you have a proper hi-fi, it's just going to drive you nuts having these frequencies float sideways. And that's why bass and bass frequencies are usually sort of centered into the stereo field. So what I did, again, I split the mixes into these, these master tracks from the CD that I had extracted. I split them in two bands and some of them in three bands, but I kept the approach of this spatial stereo icing that I had done for disc A because I... Th I, I you know, I told myself, this is probably going to be a footprint that is going to characterize the whole remaster. So why not keep that if it worked for this original mono stuff? And I did something similar where I sort of reshaped the low, the, the low end of the spectrum of these tracks and centered it. Not too much, but just enough to keep the bolts and the meat in the flesh in the center and the whole nice pads, the synthesizers that have lots of mid frequencies and the sparkle in the highs to be able to breathe in the stereo field and recenter everything. So once this was done, not in a very hardcore way, but in a very sort of like helping things to take this sort of sound stage, I then moved to the classical, I would say the classic um, beautification of the thing. So I, again, decided for two pieces of gear. And I think, again, I went for the Rock Ruffle and went for the Fusiku. And at that point, I just went through this, uh, this chain once again, 
and uh, just made things a little bit more interesting, a little bit more moving, just not really compressing or equalizing, but making sure that things could breathe a little bit. We're talking about 94, so it's mostly the, the AD and DA that they had used coming from tape. Maybe they had made some left and right decisions in the sound field, but I said, let's kind of, you know, recenter everything and just keep things breathing uh, and alive and I have to say the tubes and the fuzzy cue just kind of give the whole thing a little more air and a little more meat in the midst just just enough to kind of re sort of clean the whole soundstage you know and make it more immersive in a way and that was it the second disc went through pretty easily compared to the first one because obviously everything was coming from the uh, 44.1 Redbook standard, which is the CD-ROM we're used to, printed again through a sound blade, and then that's it, and put on Bandcamp. So now you can listen to it. It's completely free of charge, donation-based if you want, and it's on um, dreamweb-remastered.bandcamp.com. Very easy, go there, it's two discs, you can stream them, you can download them. And what I did in the very end was I wanted to make a nice graphics version of that. Even if it's not gonna get printed, although it might get uh, a limited run of Digipacks, if it gets enough support, we're probably gonna print a limited run, maybe a hundred copies of a digipack version you can see the graphics that the layout that this digipack will have on the bandcamp page and on fuseroom.com works i've put them all there and i made sure that even if it's virtual for now if we have only you know draft version i made sure that you can actually see and feel how the digipack would feel in your hand. And it's been amazing to be able to use the original graphics, to be able to put stuff in there that belongs to the original game in terms of fonts. I have to say what helped me a lot is Funi from Twitter, which is a guy who's able to extract fonts and has a sort of, he called it a Sierra death generator, which is amazing. You're able to make these mock-ups of video game screens using the original fonts and stuff. So I called for him and I said, I really need your help. Have you done DreamWeb? And he said, no, I haven't, but it's on my to-do list, so I'll do it. And it was, I think, 5 a.m. where he lives in California. And he did this amazing job in being able very fast to let me use the fonts in the video game to write some of the stuff. So... Take a look at the graphics, they're great. If you've played the video game, you'll recognize a lot of them. And it's also great to show you how, you know, something can be really cared for and remade, not only in the audio version, but also from, even if it's virtual for now, from a graphic standpoint. We come from the era when you could touch the records, right? And vinyl and even compact discs uh, were a little more sterile, but you had these sort of graphics in your hand and the booklet and stuff. So that's the idea that I was going for. Once again, thank you very much for the support. People have been donating to this project already and I can't thank you enough. This is amazing. And uh, listen to this soundtrack and get you know carried away, drift away in the atmosphere. Again, this was amazing 
an amazing piece of music and of work made by Matt Seldon. So thank you, Matt, for the amazing music. Thanks for giving me and Fuse Room Recording Studio the okay to do this and to finally have a proper remaster like other video games have now in the industry from that era, which is something I think that DreamWeb really deserved. Not a reboot, not something that brings it back in a very weird franchised way. I, I think everybody agrees we don't need that. There's the original, it's beautiful, we don't need you know, much more than that. But the music itself, I'm very honored and humbled to have been part of that and to have been able to just give it a little more of a modern breath without, you know, overpowering your original idea and really preserving what was, you know, the vibe that carried me and many other people in the video game. Thank you very much for listening. See you next week. Ciao, guys.